All right, school is in session. So take your seats and turn up the volume. volume. It's time for the smartest fishing show on the internet. This is the show that dives into everything fishing from tactics and gear to policy and product. Here he is, the fishing professor, Professor Sid Dobrin. So stick around, you might learn something. Uh, hey, 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 welcome to the Inventive Fishing Fishing Professor Rodcast. I am Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor, and we have got a fantastic episode for you this week. But then again, don't we have a fantastic episode for you each week? So I'm thrilled to have in the inshore offshore digital studio today, Jose Chavez of Z-Man Fishing Products. And Jose and I will be talking about some inshore fishing strategies and, of course, some of the great products from Z-Man. And during the much-needed and well-deserved bourbon break today, I'll be taking a look at Whistle Pig Rye. And after that, I'm going to count down my top 10 plugs for targeting redfish. And speaking of plugs, let me just plug the Rodcast a bit and ask each of you to please share the Rodcast with all of your fishing and drinking buddies. And you should also be sure to subscribe or follow the Rodcast by clicking that button that's on any of the platforms through which you listen to the Rodcast. Hey, welcome to the Rodcast. Let's get casting. All right. Well, we have got a heck of a guest today in the Inshore Offshore Digital Studio because I am sitting here with Mr. Jose Chavez, the Director of Product Development for Z-Man. Now, for those of you who don't know Jose's name yet, let me just say that Jose Chavez is one of the most dynamic contemporary lure designers and angler experts in the industry. And before joining forces with Z-Man, Jose was designing and developing lures for brands like 13 Fishing and Savage Gear and is known as one of the foremost up-and-coming lure designers in the industry. But I want to squash that reputation a bit and say that he is not one of the foremost up-and-coming designers in the industry, because there is nothing up-and-coming about his career. He is, in fact, one of the foremost designers already out there, established, sought-after, period. And as testament to this, over the years, his lure designs have won multiple best-of awards at the annual ICAST New Product Showcase, one of the most prestigious awards for tackle manufacturers. Jose has also had a successful career as a tournament angler, both on bass tournament series and kayak angling tournaments. But after several years on the tournament circuit, he took some time off to focus on raising a family. But it's not just bass he knows. As a Florida West Coast angler, he has also become one of the foremost experts in saltwater fishing, both inshore and offshore. So today we're going to talk fishing with a true expert and one of the most genuinely nice guys I know in the industry. Jose, it is great to have you here. Thanks so much for taking the time to be on the Rodcast. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. I, I really appreciate it. It's quite the, uh, it's kind of strange hearing the, the intro, but I guess a lot of stuff has happened in the past few years in the world of fishing. So um, yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me on board. Oh, gladly, gladly. Glad to have you here. So we generally start each episode of the Rodcast conversation with a question about fishing origins. And your story is a bit different than many of those we have here on the show, but also among anglers in general. And if I've heard it correctly, you're from Morales, Guatemala, and it was your grandfather who introduced you to fishing, handlining for Mojaras with your grandfather along the Rio Dulce, Rio Dulce, and he would take you to the Barrier Reef out at Belize. Could you tell us a little bit about the Jose Chavez fishing origin story and how that beginning really planted the fishing passion for you? 
Yeah, totally. So I was, uh, I can't even remember how old I was. I, it's one of some of my earliest memories, but I, I grew up in Guatemala in a town called Morales. And then um, my grandfather ran a convenience store on the right on the river. And so I remember going there um, quite a bit and just sitting at the dock in front of his shop and just like fishing the whole time, like all day. Um, and that really kind of got me started. And then it was really with his, with my uncle, who is my, you know, grandfather's son, that, uh, my grandfather was really tied into his store. So he didn't really take a whole lot of time to go out on, on trips. My uncle would go once a year to fish the barrier reef. And, you know, I think it was probably around the ages of six or seven where he started taking me along. And, um, you know, as an adult, I look back at, at that and I say, wow, that's a really, you know, amazing investment that he made in, in taking a young kid fishing because I, you know, I have, you know, a seven year old now and it, it changes the dynamic of your fishing trips when you're bringing a, you know, a young person on board. So, I mean, I think between my grandfather getting me started and my uncle taking me on those trips to, to Belize, it really just turned me into like, kind of like a fishing addict. And I never really, really stopped, you know, since then I, been fishing basically my entire life so it's been fun what a what a great experience what what kind of stuff did you target while you were fishing in belize do you remember memorable catches yeah i mean we were just uh, the the technical fishing that occurs there is a far cry from what happens here so we would just get chicken rigs and like bottom fish and i remember catching all sorts of you know different grouper species and snapper species and we'd pull plugs uh, behind the boat and you'd run into like you know yellowfin tuna and barracudas and every now and then a wahoo or some kingfish but it was just a variety of stuff and the, the you know the bottom contours and the fishery of that reef were so insane that you know you, you just really knew they had no idea what you were gonna you knew that you had no idea what you're gonna get into it you're gonna get into something so um it, it was cool it was really cool and then i remember the first trip as a uh I was probably, like I said, seven or eight, and we were tr pulling a plug and we pulled, we caught a black grouper that was, you know, probably in the 20 to 30 pound range. And I just remember being completely blown away by it. And um, it was just an amazing experience for, for a young kid. So it kind of set the foundation for everything moving forward. Uh, what a great story. All right. So let's turn to your tournament career for a bit. Tell us how you got started tournament fishing, particularly in the MFL series, MLF series. So that's a, something I was going to bring up. I don't know if there's another Jose Chavez that did stuff in MLF, but that wasn't, uh, it wasn't me. Um, <laughs> my, uh, my kind of inception in tournament fishing kind of started with, um, some of the inshore tournaments that occurred here in, in Florida. So when I was 15, I ended up moving to the States and at 16, I, I moved to Florida with my parents and, um, I started doing a bunch of kayak fishing and I remember um, just kind of like wading out to a flat. I would, didn't have a boat or a kayak or anything, but I was wading out to a flat and um, I knew there was going to be some redfish there um, in a particular oyster bar at a certain tide. And uh, I was almost there. It was probably like a half mile walk, you know, through the water and along the shoreline to get there. And this kayak flies by me, knocks out a couple of redfish in front of me, basically before I got there. And by the time I got there, the bike was shut down. So I got it into like kayak forums and kayak fishing. And they had like a, these club tournaments from one of the kayak forums. And I started getting involved there um, and then ended up fishing um, uh, some more of the, the, the more competitive kayak tournaments, like, you know, Flats Masters and IFA and, 
And then it kind of just progressed. Um, I, I guess the, the peak of my uh, tournament fishing was uh, I, I ended up being uh, one of Hobie's regional pro staffers and got invited to fish the Hobie Worlds. Um, so I remember the first time we went to Australia to fish in the Hobie Worlds, I ended up leading day one, day two. And on the last day, I got knocked down to day to fourth place, which was kind of a bummer because I officially didn't place. But it was uh, it was a really cool experience. But yeah, most of my tournament fishing is really local, um, you know, Florida, um, you know, inshore slam tournaments, catch, foot and release. And then um, I, I did some of the catch, foot and release bass tournaments as well. But uh, and then the, the few events that I did, I did the Hobie Worlds uh, in Australia for year one. And then they moved it to Texas for year two. And I competed in both of those, which was it was really fun, you know. There's something about tournament fishing that gets makes you get a lot more granular about stuff and like optimization and you know in, you know trying to improve your catch rate or what you're doing over you know the other people uh, there and I think that was really kind of formative in in the whole process of you know lure development because I think you know as anglers um, some of them are like some of us are like tinkers we like to cut things glue things back together glue split shots and weights and all sorts of stuff to things. And I think even the the world of kayak fishing back then, when I first started, there were like, now people have like amazing kayaks that are completely like set up and tricked out and intuitively designed. Back then we were just bolting everything to our kayak ourselves or making it ourselves. So that kind of, that kind of path of like, you know, creating your own, your own solutions to issues that you encounter in fishing kind of, you know, led really well to the, the way my mind thinks and, and kind of the, you know, the, the fishing that I did. So it was cool. Yeah. I mean, I completely understand that. Um, you know, I, I've been kayak fishing and kayak tournament fishing on and off for the last 20 years. And I learned the same way, you know, waiting East beach at Fort DeSoto and here comes the kayak or the John boat or picnic Island or the clam bar under the skyway and, you know, wanting that boat. And if you look, I've been fishing the same kayak for the last 20 years and everybody makes fun of me for it because I've got PVC duct tape to it. You know, it, it, it was never designed as a fishing kayak, but I made it into one. So yeah, that, that DIY kind of approach is, uh, is there for a lot of kayak uh, anglers from back then, you know, you're talking about your, um, your experience in, um, Australia doing the kayak fishing. If I read correctly, you finished fourth in the Hobie world tournament when you were in Australia as the top mm -hmm. international angler too. I mean, it wasn't, I mean, that was yeah. impressive stuff. Yeah, it's just the, the locals got me after uh, the the third day, but it was fun. It was, a, I mean, Australians in general are just like really like animated, like happy, like uh, fun people. And uh, I remember the heckling that occurred amongst themselves that uh, <laughs> I was winning for the first couple of days. It was, uh, it was such a cool experience. And I still have a lot of, you know, friends that I met there that I still keep in touch with, but yeah, it was uh, it was cool. I, I didn't you know, didn't expect to to have that level of results. I was just trying to do the best that I could, and it, it worked for a couple of days. So, uh, excellent experience. So, we, I want to talk about Z-Man stuff today, clearly because of your role <laughs> with Z-Man. And I know that even before you joined Z-Man, you were a big fan of the Z-Man Chatterbait, and you've credited that credited that Chatterbait Chatterbait with uh, a lot of your success. And you've also, I've read quotes where you've said that a lot of other anglers owe a lot of success to the Z-Man chatterbait. 
Um, talk to me about Z-Man's Chatterbait and why it's such a powerful lure, particularly for tournament anglers. Man, it's uh, I think it's just an incredible tool for covering water and power fishing and the drawing power to a Chatterbait is there's just something about that bait that I think uh, um, that fish just gravitate gravitate towards whether it's annoying them and they're reacting and trying to shut it up or, or something like it no matter where you are in the country kind of along with the ned rig um that demon has as well like no matter where you are in the country that's a tool that will really outperform just about anything in in several i'm not going to say most situations but several situations you know if you look at you know the results on tour now uh, whether people you know say it or not you can see that they're chatterbait is just a major part of their arsenal so it's just i mean it's just an incredible bait that you can take everywhere and have success all right so what would be your pro tip on when where and how to fish the chatterbait yeah so i mean i tend to fish the chatterbait a, a lot around grass and i think that's kind of typical to i mean not, i'm in florida right so we have tons of vegetation so i'm usually like you know looking for hydrilla edges and just ripping it out of grass and you know windy days i think you know one of the things where chatterbaits kind of shine is like you know if, if the wind kicks up a little bit and you got a little bit of kind of turbidity in the water like it's it's a bait that even like you can catch fish doing a lot of things but for some reason the chatterbait specifically seems to outperform just about anything out there and its ability to cover water is insane so i would just say like if whenever you see a little bit of wind on the water um, and a little bit of kind of silt or, you know, the, the water's starting to kind of become a little dirty or have a little more kind of texture to it, um, chatterbaits on, on windblown points or any place that the wind is causing some sort of a current or a little bit of movement of water is that it's just an absolutely um, dynamite lure. So. All right. So given that, and now you just said that, you know, being based out of the, you know, West coast, Florida area and that you do inshore slam tournaments, talk to me about transitioning chatterbait from freshwater to targeting redfish, trout, snook, and how the chatterbait works as a saltwater bait. Yeah. So honestly, I, my approach of, of it is, is really similar. It's, it's an amazingly effective saltwater bait. I, I remember when the chatterbait first came up and I looked at it and I was like, that thing looks kind of funky. I don't know about this. And then I was fishing with a friend and they started just wearing out some redfish um, with the chatterbait. And we were um, in, fishing at an area in Safety Harbor that you know, just has a lot of mud bottom with a little bit of kind of like scattered vegetation. And you'd find like a, you know, a fish here, a fish there, but it wasn't like anything, no fish that were schooled up. So I was throwing a spoon and having some success with it. And then one of my buddies busted out, uh, you know, just one of those chatterbaits um, that it's just a jig head and the blade and you can put a plastic on it. I can't remember exactly. I think it's just labeled as a chatterbait by Z-Man. Uh, but it, it just, I think anytime you're searching for fish, um, especially again, when the water's a little bit stained and you have a little bit of wind, um, it's just a phenomenal tool. It's really kind of replaced my, my using of gold spoons. Um, and what I like about it a lot is that you can kind of let it sink and, you know, fish it like a little bit deeper. If you encounter some potholes or you can kind of wind it and keep it up on the surface, it's just really versatile, uh, compared to like a spoon. Like, I think they're really effective when they're bouncing bottom. But sometimes the cadence and the rhythm that you have to keep with a spoon um, doesn't necessarily align sometimes with um, 
the speed that the fish are looking for. And I think by having the flexibility of like adjusting your weight, whether you're fishing a quarter, three eighths or a half um, on the flats, it works super well. Um, so it's just like a great little search bait. All right. Well, you use the phrase there, a funky looking bait. And so <laughs> I got I, I to hear your take then, since we're talking about chatter baits and funky looking baits, give me your take on the Hellraiser. I mean, this is a really unique design in a chatter bait. You know, it's designed by Ron Davis. It's a hybrid bait, <laughs> kind of chatter bait topwater, but it's almost got a stick bait or jerk bait design to it. Tell me about the Hellraiser. Yeah, the, the Hellraiser is super cool. So I know when I first came on board with Seaman um, that first week, I, I went to the office for the meeting and um, to just kind of meet the rest of the team, get an idea of where things were going with the product and kind of have projects kind of getting started hand, handed over to me and, and, and you know, just, you know, brainstorming new projects. And I, I saw this um, Hellraiser and I was just like, oh, this thing looks crazy. Like it just, it reminded me, it's got that kind of like, you know, we were talking about like people tinkering and like, you know, creating things based off of necessity or curiosity. And it just looks like something that's been like masterminded um, in, 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 a, in a garage or something like that, for lack of a better term. And, it, it, you know, I thought the same with the Chatterbait when I saw it, but um, I got to I've gotten to fish this uh, Hellraiser quite a lot. And it's really impressive. Like it doesn't look like much when you see it out of the water and you're looking at it. But when you see it in the water, it's just it, it just clicks. You're just like, yep, this is going to work. And it uh, from what I found in the little bit that I fished it and kind of talking to some of our pros that have gotten, gotten some time with it. Um, I really think that it's going to have a niche where it really shines, which is when you have schooling bass. And when schooling bass are chasing down, you know, bait, whether it's herring or whatever they're chasing down, um, because they're moving pretty fast. And with walking baits, you can't really cover water that fast. And then the um, like kind of like your whopper ploppers and other baits, they, they have a lot of resistance moving through the water. So it's not really like I don't know, it's not I would say it's like the optimal um, presentation for that, you know, application. But this Hellraiser like. It has very little resistance moving through the water. It causes a lot of commotion. I think, you know, it throws a lot of flash with that rear blade in the back that, you know, I think those fish are keying into like flashing and, and small bait near the surface. And it just has all the, all the characteristics of something that they would be looking for. Um, and the time that I've used it, it's been, it's been really great. So I, I really think that this is going to kind of like find a, a kind of a niche in a, in a, and a purpose in everyone's tackle box is like a, 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 something in their arsenal they can use for, you know, these specific situations. And even in those situations that aren't, um, you know, like spawning bass, busting fish on the surface, like I've done a lot of fishing, like running, you know, shorelines with it and weed lines. And it just gives you something totally different that it, the, the fish haven't seen and, you know, and that they kind of react to. So I've had a lot of success with it. I'm, I'm, I'm impressed. And my initial thought when I saw it was like, well, what's happening here but it's just with that tie tie point below the nose and like you said it kind of looks like a stick bait but it's got this blade on the back and then it sinks when it hits the water but as, as soon as you start reeling it it pops up to the surface and and really starts that very tight erratic um side to side walking action that it has and yeah it's just the it's just a cool bait it, the, the the pictures and looking at it in person doesn't do it justice you have to like you have to get it on the water and reel it a couple of times and, and then you're just like whoa like this is gonna this is gonna be cool this is gonna be something i'm gonna use so. yeah, i think the first time i saw it i thought 
Oh, somebody <laughs> broke a devil's horse and tried to fix it by putting metal on the back end of it. But uh, yeah, really different looking kind of lure, but I've been hearing good things about it. All right, so let's talk about Elaztec because I know that you're focused on Elaztec plastics and that the Elaztec line is an important part of the Z-Man portfolio. And Elaztec's an interesting plastic technology in that Elaztec contains no PVC, no plastisols, no phthalates, and it's non-toxic. Could you talk about Elaztec and how it compares with other soft bodies and what specifically is meant when Z-Man says the Elaztec plastics are 10 times tougher than other plastics? Yeah, totally. So elastic is uh, it's a pretty amazing elastomer that, uh, like you said, is incredibly durable. Um, and uh, just to kind of get into why I think it's it just, you know, from the a perspective of an angler, like a lot of times when we're out fishing, um, the action, there, there's good action. And then you cast out, you cook a fish, you bring the fish back in and your plastics toast. So you got to dig through your, whether your tackle bags, you know, handy, you got to dig through your tackle bag. You got to find another pack of plastics or even, you know, the time of just like reaching into your pocket, pulling out the pack and putting another, another lure on. Uh, the advantage of elastic is that you 10 times tough is probably an understatement um, because I've caught, you know, tens of fish on a single elastic bait. And what I, what I think is, you know, really huge about it is that, I never have to touch the bait at all. I, I rig it. One of the things I do is I put a little bit of uh, the super glue gel on the jig head and I slide it on and I, that, that, that plastic is on there all day. So you can just focus on casting, you know, hooking a fish, you're focusing on fishing instead of like, you know, doing some of other, you know, the subsidiary management that, that happens when you have to like, you know, find your plastics, you know, re-put another one on and the action is going on. You can just release the fish make a cast, hook another one and just, just keep going. And in terms of the other thing that I think is really neat about elastic is that um, we can, we can make elastic extremely soft. And that's a, that's a really, you know, good thing in terms of like the action of the lure and also like the tactile experience that a fish has when they, when they have it in their mouth, I think something soft is something they tend to equate more with like a natural, you know, food and they, tend to hold it longer. So um, traditionally, if you're using like plastisol or some of these other, you know, materials that are used for plastics, like these really soft baits, like a fish kind of like interacts with it in a minimal way and it will tear. And it just kind of enhances the, you know, the issue of having to continually like, you know, change your plastics when you are, instead of focusing on, you know, your next cast and, you know, the fishing for the rest of what you're going to do with, you know, the next few minutes. So I, I think it, you know, it, it gives us as anglers the ability to spend more time focused on fishing. Um, and it also gives us the opportunity of using presentations in really soft, you know, plastic compositions that normally would kind of be a pain to fish with. Um, but because of its durability, it, it kind of eliminates all of those problems. Um, I, I do have to say it has some like nuances in rigging, um, but it, there's a little bit of a learning curve there. But once you figure out, you know, it, once you rig it a couple of times and you find out what jig heads and or what, you know, hooks to use that work well and, and Z-Man makes a, a lot of them. So I would say, you know, if for anyone, you know, curious about trying elastic or Z-Man or um, I would highly suggest, you know, looking at the rigging uh or the tackle manager the rigging solutions that Z-Man has made because they've kind of done a great job in the past of 
tailoring those um, that terminal tackle to work well with the material. In terms of the other thing about it being phthalate free, yeah, it's a, uh, it's it, it in terms of you know if you have kids or, or or even for your own health, like there are things in plastisol that probably are not the healthiest or greatest things for you to be exposed to on a regular basis, and you know all of that is a non-issue with you know with elastic. It's it's uh it's something that. Um, you just don't have to worry about that exposure at all, and especially with kids in the house. And, you know, sometimes they will, will handle baits and then they'll grab something and stick it in their mouths or you stick their hands in their mouths. Like it's, you're just a lot more at, at, at ease. Not that I encourage them to do that at all, but um, I just know that the, the exposure, the risk for exposure isn't there. So let's talk about that for a second, because I'm kind of curious about that non-toxicness um, particularly because, you know, we have seen over the last couple of years uh, sort of an elevation from the environmentalist anti-plastic lure agenda coming up in legislation, particularly in, you know, New England and now, you know, with the no lead and everything also. But, you know, we're hearing talk about no plastics and how does the non-toxic plastic then put Z-Man at kind of an advantage in that overall conversation? Well, I think a lot of the things that people look at, um, you know, when they look at the toxicity of plastics in general is like, you know, uh, some of the compounds that are made that, that kind of leach out of the plastic or, you know, the other part is that they, you know, these soft plastics sink and they just get, you know, uh, become part of the sediment in the bottom. And, you know, the beauty of elastic is one that it floats. Um, so if it were to get, you know, dislodged from a hook, it's something that's easy to retrieve and it just doesn't have any of those, you know, toxic uh, compounds that are used in production. So you're not really, you know, worried about like leaching any of that into the environment. So I think that's another, you know, like you said, another huge advantage of, of elastic. And, and before um, in the past, before all this legislation um, started appearing, then maybe it wasn't such a notable, you know, advantage, but I think um, as uh the government or these the agencies that manage our fisheries get a little bit more um conscious or you know proactive on unlimiting exposure of the environment of, of limiting exposure that occurs from the plastics that are that people are using and and how it affects the environment i think you know seaman will find a a, a a safe niche there because it's something that has you know a, extremely minimal impact Excellent. So I want to go back to what we were talking about, about the toughness of this. You know, you were you were with Savage Gear before coming to Z-Man, uh, working with Mads, uh, which also is another company that's turned out some incredible plastics over these last couple of years. And Mads and Savage Gear have talked a lot about their TPE, you know, mm -hmm. which are also really tough plastics. How do you think about Elastec compared not just with Savage TPE plastics, but TPE in general? Yeah, so um, one of the things about elastic is that is, so elastic is is a form of TPE, um, and it's something that uh, where I think it has the huge advantage is that you know uh, Zeman was kind of the pioneers of TPE. TPE was not popular at all or used in fishing um, much at all until they really got into it, and I think. Um, they've really done an amazing job at uh, applying science and some of the resources that they had available to fine tune their formulation of, of elastic to be 
you know, kind of the, the softest in the market. So now that I am working here at Z-Man, it's, it's really nice. So when I, you're, you're referring to Savage Gear, um, so those TPE baits with Savage Gear, I, I was the one that brought them all in with the exception of the shrimp, the original shrimp that Savage Gear had. Um, I was the one that brought that designed and brought all those baits uh, to market here for the U.S. And, uh, you know, there's some clear advantages that we talked about of its durability. One of the limitations with all of this foreign TPE, and by foreign, I mean, you know, Chinese produced, Korean produced, or even the, even the Japanese TPE, is that there's a lot of limitations in the durometer of the plastic. And for those that I'm not familiar with durometers, so basically on how soft you can make it. Um, those limitations are really only, it, it really, it, it's not a limitation at all with elastic. So the, the kind of the recipes that we have and the kind of the knowledge that in the research that's been put into elastic and fine tuning elastic gives us a much broader window of what we can do with the product. And I think you'll notice too, if you're using some of the other TPEs that exist, um, they're a lot harder and a lot stiffer of material. And so it just kind of, it has a completely different, um, you know, movement in the water and whatnot. But, but again, they are, they, they are low toxicity also. They are, you know, they have a lot of durability. I just think that Z-Man, given that they lived, pioneered the plastic in the fishing industry uh, through the resource and the amount of time they spent in, you know, research and development have, they are several generations ahead of some of the competitive, competitive formulations of TPE that are on the market. All right. So given that and your mm -hmm. role as the lure designer and uh, your role in having designed award-winning lures, what kind of design elements will you be looking to work with, with the extended future Elaztec collection? So what's coming next? Yeah. <laughs> I can't get into too much detail of what's coming next. I think uh, one of the things that uh, kind of worked out well by me coming on board is that there's some, you know, I I've spent a lot of time working on a lot of very complex projects. Um, and I think Z-Man's made a lot of uh, also complex projects, but they're not quite at the level of complexity of some of the stuff we did with Savage Gear with some of our swim baits and, you know, some other things. So I think between that uh, experience that we have making those complex baits and, you know, seeing the available market opportunities that Z-Man has set forward, I think people are going to see uh, a completely, you know, different side of z-man moving forward in, in a good way so it's still it's going to be uh, along the lines of what everybody remembers but I, I think you know the the realm of possibilities of what we can do has kind of expanded past what we've seen z-man do in the past um and it, we just have a, an amazing group of you know pro anglers on board um is some of the most talented i've ever worked with um and you know between our team in South Carolina, who's just an, an amazing group of individuals there. I'm just honored to be, you know, a part of that Z-Man family. Um, like we're, we have a lot of really good ideas in the hopper that are going to be coming out here in um, 2023 as well. You'll, you'll see the first, you know, designs that I'm, that I've, I've been working on that will be, we will be bringing to market. So sorry, it wasn't really, uh, couldn't get into the nitty gritty of what we're doing next, but I, I think you'll see us kind of expand into some new areas that you haven't seen us uh, into new markets where we haven't really played before. Um, we will, and also strengthen some of the markets that we are already in. So there's going to be a, a nice mix of, of products kind of um, on the horizon soon. 
Excellent. So let's stick with Z-Man. Let me ask you about some uh, all the slew of spinner baits that Z-Man has, and given Z-Man's success in the bass market, these the spinner baits that Z-Man turns out are freshwater targeted. But I was wondering about spinner baits on the saltwater side, since spinner baits for reds and trout have become so popular. Um, talk to me about Z-Man spinner baits, but targeting inshore species. Yeah, totally. So. Um... They have a, a variety of products. I believe they have a spinnerbait also that's, you know, made for it. I'm sorry that I'm not super conversant yet on, on some of the names, but I think it's called the bullseye spinnerbait. Um, and they, um, they work really well. And, you know, spinnerbaits were popular for a while in saltwater, and I feel like they kind of phased out a little bit, and they're starting to come back now. But uh, basically, it's kind of a, along the lines of the gold spoon, like that search bait. Um, that you have. But what's nice about spinner baits is the ability that you have to add a trailer to it. So you can add profile to the bait by using a larger trailer or a smaller trailer. You can kind of uh, fine tune the color that you're using. So the presentation is a little bit more flexible than your standard, you know, um, spoon presentation. And also one of the things that's nice about spoons is that spoons that spinner baits is they let you, uh, again, by manipulating the trailer that, you, that you're using and the weight of the spinnerbait, it, 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 would, it lets you work the lure a lot slower than you would necessarily need to keep a spoon moving in order to be effective. And the other thing I found is that spinnerbaits, um, you can, with spoons, you, you kind of have to balance them, from my experience, you kind of have to make contact with the bottom periodically in order for them to work well or they work the best from my experience when you're doing that with spinner baits you can uh, kind of cover you know higher up in the water column and still have some success and then you can you know you can bump bottom as well as if you want and have success so it, it just gives you more flexibility so i i see um a lot of the the high level tournament uh redfish guys and and you definitely see spinner baits in their boxes as something that they use I, again it's kind of something that kind of became really popular and that people kind of like whether they stopped talking about it or it became a little bit less popular um when you look at the guys that you know competitively fish uh the redfish circuit um in salt they they use spinnerbaits you know so it's just it's a cool tool that people maybe have kind of forgotten about a little bit but it's uh not something to, to sleep on yeah, I like what you're saying there about the customability and changing things out. I'm a big fan of uh, Z-Man's TRD spins, which is basically how to add a willow blade or a Colorado blade to the back of a soft body. And I think that gives a lot of addition when you're working a jig head and a soft body. And it's just a, a neat way of adding that spin to the, to the lure to give that visual flash. Mm-hmm. All right, so we since I mentioned in saltwater again, let me jump back to Elastec for one second because... We didn't talk about the easy shrimp. Talk to me about what's unique in the saw. I mean, this is a tough market. I mean, everybody and their brothers got a molded shrimp. You know, ever since Mark Nichols gave us the DOA shrimp or the cream shrimp or something. But what is it about the about Z-Man's easy shrimp that makes it unique within the shrimp, the soft body shrimp market? Oh, yeah. I, the easy shrimp is a really impressive lure. I I'm a big fan specifically of the one that um, comes in loose bodies and you can put a jig head on. Um, I think you can get a lot of, uh, it gives you a lot of flexibilities in the presentation. So 
like if you like we and and mark has done an incredible job in the past he's a mark's a good friend of mine and uh i have nothing but respect for what he's done with the uh, doa shrimp and he kind of paved the way for you know people to look at men the shrimp lures are super effective and it's something we need to look in and, and you know mark's lure came rigged with a um kind of like an embedded hook and a weight and on the belly. Um, and so I, th I think you see some different configurations of shrimp now, one that come with a um, uh, EWG hook um, that I know, you know, Savage and I think Voodoo makes a, a version of it. And then there's some other shrimps that have like a jig place also that, you know, Savage and, and Voodoo makes. But what makes the easy shrimp, in my opinion, stand out is that you can with that single body you can rig it you know kind of like center weighted with the ewg hook so it has a more horizontal angle fall so it's going to kind of stand the water column better it's going to go through grass better that way or you can put a jig head on it and your your choice of a jig head and you can you know you know flip and pitch your skip docks really well or you can you know lighten it up a little bit and fish potholes so like what's nice about it is that regardless of where you're at you can take that shrimp and rig it to to accomplish what you want to accomplish and i think the versatility of the easy shrimp is what really makes it stand out in that market so it's it's something that i, I would say what i fish now is there's always an easy shrimp tied on in my arsenal of, of rods that i carry with me so excellent you ever fish easy shrimp under a popping cork yeah. Yeah. Not uh, if I'm uh, honest, the popping cork, um, I know it's super effective. It's not my favorite way to fish. So I, even when I go, you know, to Louisiana or, you know, some of the, the, the nature coast or kind of that upper Florida panhandle coast and people are killing it on, on, pop, on popping corks. I'm one of those stubborn people that kind of, I'd rather throw, you know, a chatterbait or, or try different things. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's super effective under a popping cork. And to that point, like you could rig it, uh, under a popping cork, you could vary the amount of weight that you're, or you're rigging, um, versus just having like a jig head and, and a hook, but yeah, it works super good on a popping cork. I'm not, no offense to all the guys out there that love <laughs> popping corks. I'm not, uh, I'm not trying to ruffle any feathers. I'm just saying like, personally, it's just not my, my favorite way of, of doing it. So I'd rather take a few less fish and, and do it a different way than than the popping cork which when the popping cork is working it seems to be that nothing out there can even come close to it it's super effective gotcha yeah i have to say that among the companies that are producing popping corks right now i'm seeing more and more of them making the arguments about why you know, there's actually a popping cork war going on out there about whose popping cork is better all right so i want to get a pro build here let's imagine there's a new angler just getting into bass fishing and has the opportunity to get hold of a Plano box of Z-Man lures to kick off his or her bass fishing career. What are the six Z-Man lures that Jose Chavez puts in the next generation anglers kickoff box? All right. So this is uh, someone who's bass fishing or, or, or someone just fishing in general and freshwater. Sorry. General freshwater. We'll go with that. Make okay. it easier. So one has got to be the Ned rig. Like what? Like whether you go, you can go anywhere in the country. You can fish from the bank. You can fish from a boat. Um, the TRD, that TRD Ned rig setup is it works everywhere. And even when the fishing gets tough, if you're along amongst like really pressured fish, um, or it doesn't matter where it is, that that thing just catches fish and works. 
Um, I guess number two would probably be really would be this micro finesse line. Um, this micro finesse line of plastics is, is pretty amazing. We just did, uh, I was just over on the East coast of Florida doing some fishing with that for a video we were shooting. And, um, we caught, it's, it's all from bland, just walking canals and, you know, little lakes. And we caught peacocks, Oscars, uh, Mayan cichlids, clown knives, um, snook, crappie, bluegill. Like, so the, the number of game fish or just fish in general that are going to be willing to take a, take a, a shot at a, at a, one of these micro finesse baits is like, it, it's huge. So if you're fishing like some of the larger profile baits specifically for bass, you're going to kind of be limited on what you can, you know, what's going to try to eat that. But in terms of the micro finesse line for a new angler, especially, I think it's, it's, there's a little bit of a learning curve to getting into like, you know, lure fishing. And a lot of people get discouraged um, when they don't necessarily get that much action or have that much success. And so I think, you know, this also applies to the Ned rig. Um, it's just one of those lures that a lot of stuff, whether it's a small fish, big fish, it's less selective and it gives you kind of more um, positive feedback um, in your lure fishing. So you can feel more confident about it as a new angler and also, you know, enjoy it a lot more instead of just being like, man, I tried this for a day and I didn't get a bite. Um, it's kind of hard to do that with the micro finesse line or, or like the Ned rigs and not get, you know, some, some form of attempted murder by a fish uh, on your plastic. So um, next it has to be the jackhammer um, or a chatterbait in general, like that, lure a jackhammer and, and i don't know if this counts or not but i would throw in a razor shed and then a jerk shed with it and, and those are kind of like the two different profiles that i tend to fish the most when i'm fishing you know in freshwater and fishing a um a chatterbait um the razor shad kind of has more of like a large you know bait fish profile it's a lot taller it, it takes so it has it hunts a little less when you're working that chatterbait through the water with the razor shed but you can work at a little bit faster speeds and then the jerk shed kind of like a fine five inch um jerk shed is super effective too it's a smaller profile it has a little bit less resistance in the water um and uh it has a little bit more of like an erratic hunting action that also kind of triggers fish so i think those no matter where you are, you kind of, you can just cast that out, you know, slow reel it until you're, you hit cover and then just rip it out of the grass. And it's just, you get instant feedback. Um, if there are fish in the area. Excellent. Um, yeah, my next ones are kind of, I'm kind of biased, but, um, I really like the, uh, I do a lot of, or not a lot, I do a fair amount of like tarpon and, and snook fishing. And then the Z-Man Mag Swims has become probably my one of my favorite, you know, tarpon and snook baits. Um, and I just pair it with like a diesel, one of those diesel eye jig heads. I actually went out last night. So if I look a little tired, it's because I, I got home at like 6.45 in the morning from tarpon fishing. But we went out last night and, you know, caught a few fish. And um, the way these fish react to that, uh, to that Mag Swims is great. And one of the things, you know, that's interesting about tarpon in general is I feel like they like things that don't move a whole lot. They don't like aggressive kicking. They don't like jerky erratic actions. Um, and the mag swim, because it's so soft and long, 
it's a paddle tail swim bait, but it's, it's a, it's a subtle paddle tail swim bait that works really well in the current. And it, it doesn't, it just has the right around amount of movement to where you get a lot of cooperation from whether it's like snook or, or tarpon, I think, uh, it works really well. I know I just switched the salt water on your freshwater thing and that's all right. I'll, par- I'll partly <laughs> blame my lack of sleep for that, but, but yeah, that's another one to not really sleep on. Um, yeah, but I think that that kind of covers a good, a good amount. The other, the other one that people kind of don't fish a lot of, and I fish a lot of it maybe because I'm in Florida is the turbo fatties. And that's just basically a very, um, wide, um, worm swimming worm basically that kicks that has a, a lot of kicking action so like you can fish that through like lily pads and through cover on the surface with just the ewg hook or if you put a you know, kind of like a bullet weight in the front of it you can kind of you know get it down in the grass or get it to the bottom and, and cover you know different parts of the water column like even you can even um texas rig it or you know fish it a few different ways and i think with with those kind of baits you you, you kind of have a, a large you know a large amount of it cover you're going to catch fish with that you can cover the top of the water column you can cover you know you can do some search bait fishing you can rip things out of grass and you can target a, a wide variety of species um so it just kind of gives people a good a good mix of of products to kind of get started with excellent what i, I want to build that tackle box then so jose yeah. This has been a great conversation, and I know that Daniel Nussbaum and Joey Prochaska and the rest of the Z-Man team are thrilled to have you on board. But before we say goodbye, we do have a traditional wrap-up question on the Rodcast. So let me let me ask you, given all your incredible experiences in angler and all your success as a lure designer, what's your grail fish? What's the bucket list fish that's still out there for you? So right now, the fish that I've been working on uh, for the past few years and COVID kind of put an end to it um, for momentarily, but I think I'm going to start again is a, I want to catch a Kubera over 80 pounds on like a popper or a stick bait. Wow. And I've hooked, I've probably hooked six or seven of those. Um, and they have, uh, they have uh, shattered my dreams in ways that, that no one can explain, but it, like with really heavy tackle, like a 14,000 Stella, the drag a hundred pound braid, the drag completely locked down like a heavy popping rod. I've hooked several of them in that category and anywhere between, you know, 160 feet of water to, you know, 40 feet of water and things that aren't supposed to break, break like, and, and, and if they don't break, they, they're just such powerful fish. They'll run you all the way to the bottom. And when they eat a popper, it sounds like someone dropped a mo- engine block off of a helicopter or something like that. These are really massive fish and, having one eat, you know, 20 feet from the boat and run you straight down 160 feet straight into the rocks with not a single hesitation has kind of made me an addict over that fish. So that's kind of, that, that's kind of the one right now that I'm, uh, I would like to uh, really get off the list and, and catch. And the other one is a kind of a triple tail over 30 pounds. So I've caught a lot of them in the, in the kind of the mid twenties. Um, I haven't gotten one over 30 pounds. So I think that's another fish that I've kind of been working on. And it's something I'm, you know, I'm going to spend some time uh, early next month uh, trying to do as well. But um, this is the time of the year is basically now. But uh, yeah, those are the two fish that I've, that are on my list of like, I have a target, I want to accomplish it. And, you know, I'm going to keep working on that. 
Oh, that is fantastic. Yeah, Triple Tail have become really popular lately. I'm seeing a lot more about people targeting Triple Tail. I think there was just a new IGFA women's fly fishing record set for Triple Tail too. So yeah, definitely a, a great target and a great bucket list. Jose, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today and for being on the Rodcast. I'm going to be eager, of course, to be seeing what comes next from Z-Man and um, given your your little bit of uh, titillating, not telling us, but going to tell us there's new <laughs> stuff coming. I'll, I'll be right in line at the new product showcase, waiting to see what the uh, next Jose Chavez design brings us. So, Jose, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, glad to have been on board for the podcast. So thanks for having me and taking the time to <laughs> to listen to me talk about the, the, the stuff that I guess we're all addicted to. Indeed. Addicted is the right word. Thanks, Jose. All right, it's that time. We're breaking. Not breaking bad, not breaking too electric boogaloo, not breaking balls, not even breaking bread. So nothing too back breaking. We're just taking a bourbon break. And during this week's achy breaky, I want to pontificate upon Whistle Pig Rye, specifically the 10-year small batch, not the 12-year or the 15-year, both of which admittedly are still on my must-try in great quantities list. Now, I will admit that Whistle Pig Rye is a bit out of my daily driver price range. You can find the 750 milliliter bottle for around 80 to 100 bucks, and occasionally the 375 milliliter bottle for around 50. So it's not on my pick up a few bottles for the weekend list. However, I have recently had a couple of opportunities to attend a few events where the Whistle Pig Rye was readily available. So I took it upon myself to take advantage of my host's generosity and to sample a few, okay, several pours of the whis of the whistle pig rye. At one event, a wedding rehearsal dinner, I even managed to find an out-of-the-way table, a pen, and a couple of cocktail napkins on which to take some tasting notes should my rye-addled brain not remember my thoughts about the whistle pig rye. Apparently, I also took some notes later in the evening about the father of the bride's toast, which, according to my notes, was fueled by his own attention to the whistle pig rye, which he had apparently been researching more aggressively than I. Thus, for the sake of transparency, I convey to you that this week's bourbon break was unofficially and unknowingly sponsored by the patrons of two different weddings, one of my editors, and a rather well-known tech company. Thank you for your support. As to Whistlepig, the company itself has only been around since 2007 and has been dedicated to producing only rye whiskeys. They're a Canadian-based company who got started because with the assistance of master distiller Dave Pickrell, who you've probably heard me talk about in other bourbon breaks because he's considered the founding father of the craft of distilling. Anyway, with the help of Pickrell, the folks at Whistlepig bought a stock of Canadian blended whiskey and went into business. The company claims it's not focused on the past of distilling, but looking to the future of what distilling can be. The thing is, though, that the Whistlepig rye isn't actually distilled by Whistlepig, and the label just identifies the rye as being hand-bottled by, by Whistlepig. The rye is a continuation of that stock of Canadian rye that Pickerel helped the company purchase. So the, whistle, whistle, uh, so the whistle pig rye is bottled by Whistlepig, but distilled by a few other Canadian distilleries. As to the name Whistlepig, I have to admit, 
I did not know this until the almighty Google ferreted out this information, and so I give credit for this information to Dram Devotees, a great blog for whiskey enthusiasts. Anyway, according to Laura Fields of Dram Devotees, the story goes that in an interview for Whiskey Cast, which appears in episode 267 of That Great Whiskey Podcast, Pickerel was asked about the name Whistlepig, and he told the story that Raj Bakta, the founder of Whistlepig, was hiking in Vail when a Frenchman on a bicycle rode up to him stopped the bike and asked him in a comically high-pitched voice, Could it be? Could it be a whistle pig? Raj answered, A what? I don't know what you're talking about. You know, a whistle pig. The man made some strange noise into his hand in an effort to be more clear, but when he realized that Raj did not understand, he got back on his bike and rode away. The event stuck with Bakta, and he named the company Whistle Pig. Well, it turns out, and I sure didn't know this, but I guess the French did, that whistle pig is another name for a groundhog or a woodchuck. And when a groundhog gets scared, they make a high-pitched whistle to warn the rest of the groundhog colony of possible danger. And so, for those of you non-groundhog aficionados, now you know something about groundhogs and about the name whistle pig rye. Now, personally, the idea of a groundhog so scared that it screams a high-pitched whistle seems about as unwhisky a name as I can imagine. I want my whiskey named after a hearty, bold, daring thing, not cowardly Canadian rodents. Now I hate Puxatawney Phil even more. That bastard can extend winter and then scream in terror about it all he wants. I'm not a fan. Now the whistle pig rye ethos is just shot for me. And now every time I hear someone order whistle pig rye, all I'm going to think about is that screaming rodent and that whiny French guy, excuse me, whiny French gee on a bike. Not the origin story I want from a whiskey, which is a shame because the name just doesn't match the caliber of this rye. This is a 100-proof rye that's been aged 10 years in virgin American white oak and then finished in bourbon barrels. Its mash bill is easy. It's 100% rye. It's bottled in an elegant-looking bottle with some fine curved shoulders. I like the leanness of the bottle, too, and that thick base on the bottle and the distinct WP that is embossed in the glass of the back of the bottle. As to the eye of the Whistle Pig rye, it's a very clear rye with a yellowish-golden coloration, like a thin honey, like a tupelo, acacia, or clover honey, not an orange blossom honey or a buckwheat honey, which tend to be darker and browner. Yellow and gold are the key words here. The nose of the whistle pig rye is very light, but dominated by the rye spice with hints of cinnamon and clove. These are fresh-smelling spices, not like some other ryes where the spice scents smell like that jar of brown powder in the back of your grandmother's spice rack that's probably been there since the 1950s. There's also some plant scent, earthy scent in the nose too, but it's vague, but pleasant. The palate of the whiskey pig rye is thin. There's certainly some alcohol burn and spice here, which is expected from a 100-proof spirit. But the dominant taste is the sweetness of the rye blended with cinnamon and spices and more sweet flavors like vanilla and brown sugar. Given that it's a 100-proof rye, it's rather soft for a 100-proof rye, softer than you'd expect from a rye of that proof, but it's very pleasant in the mouth. The finish is spicy, that cinnamon coming to the fore, accentuating the blend of spicy and hot, like hot candies, like red hots or fireballs. 
There's also some memory of the charred oak barrels here, giving the finish a smoky, sweet, spicy taste. I also like how the finish lingers. Its ghost stays in your mouth for a bit, reminding you of what you just enjoyed. It's not a long linger, but it's also not a quick finish. Think of it as a medium linger of a memory you're glad to have. So overall, this is a really enjoyable ride, and I sure did enjoy the opportunity to sample significant numbers of glasses of Whistle Pig Rye at several events. I think the one drawback for me here is the price point. Again, at 80 to 100 bucks, that makes the Whistle Pig a bit beyond my desire for regular purchases. And as I've heard some whiskey pros point out too, that's a high price point for an outsourced spirit. Nonetheless, WP is certainly an enjoyable rye, and it's certainly a rye that I will eagerly, eagerly ask for when someone else is picking up my tab. And those are my thoughts about Whistlepig 10-Year-Old Rye. And as always, before we go, and as a final note, my regular disclaimer, please keep in mind that the Fishing Professor Bourbon Breaks reviews are not sponsored. The distillers have not sent me samples, nor do they influence my reviews at all, though I am always open to sponsorship, bribery, and extortion. The whiskeys I review are purchased out of pocket, except clearly this one, because somebody else bought these for me out of kindness and generosity. My reviews are based on the keen sense of whiskey know-how that I have developed over many years in many of this country's finest watering holes, drinking establishments, dives, pubs, honky-tonks, and back alley speakeasies. Hey, speaking of, let me give a quick shout-out to the Carousel Bar and Lounge on Royal Street, New Orleans, a funky little bar with a lot of history. I think it's been there for about 70, 75 years or so, and indeed, as the name suggests, the bar itself is shaped, shaped like a carousel, giving the place a carnivalesque ambiance, which makes perfect sense for New Orleans. It's a vibrant place worth sitting and slow sipping a cocktail or three. And like Mark Twain said... Here's to the big bull in the wood. He does the cows and heifers good. And if it weren't for his long, long rod, then what will we do for beef by God? As always, if you've got comments about this week's bourbon break, feel free to email me at sid at inventifishing.com. Let's get back to casting. Okay, my dudes and dudettes, it's time for this week's top 10. And this week, I want to look at my top 10 plugs for redfish. But before we do, let me clear the air a bit, because let's face it, the word plugs can mean a lot of things. So I want to define my terms before I start counting them down. I'm going to operate with the idea that a plug is a hard-bodied fishing lure. Oh, man. Why, why did saying that just suddenly remind me of that 1984 teen romp of a movie, Hard Bodies? A movie by its own admission that was a movie with absolutely no social value whatsoever. Sorry, sorry, mental time warp there. Anyway, plugs are hard-bodied lures. They can be crankbaits, topwater baits, shallow diving, deep diving, and so on. So really for this top 10, we're talking about any hard bait used to target redfish. However, since back in episode 1.7, the one with Dale Stewart from Seether, I counted down my top 10 topwater lures for reds. So I don't see the need to repeat that or integrate that list into this list. Uh, so for this review, I'm going to count down my top 10 subsurface plugs for redfish. Now, before I get to the countdown, I think we need a little professorial moment. Certainly, humans have been fishing and using fishing lures way back into prehistoric times when we started fishing. But when it comes to the innovation of the plug, conventional wisdom credits James Hedden with developing the idea of the plug back in the late 19th century. The way the story goes is that Hedden was sitting by a pond whittling a piece of wood, which he then tossed into the pond. When he did, a bass slammed the whittled wood. 
I guess Hedden had an epiphanal moment akin to the one that our folklore tells us that Isaac Newton had when he saw an apple fall from a tree and he was able to formulate gravitational theory based on that moment. Well, Hedden started experimenting with different shaped carved pieces of wood and developed the Lucky 13 lure. That's a lure design that's still manufactured by Hedden and sold worldwide. Hedden, of course, is the oldest fishing lure manufacturer in the world, producing lures now for over 100 years, including the iconic Hedden Zara Spook, which, by the way, is a fantastic topwater plug for Reds. And yeah, it's a plug, but it's topwater, so it's not on today's top 10 plug list. So the idea of the plug came from using a plug of wood as a lure, and for some bonus knowledge, keep in mind that the technical definition of a plug of wood is a slightly tapered, elongated, rounded peg, so basically the shape of most plug lures. Anyway, now you know the story of the innovation of the plug, and we can account for the term, plus a kind of it's kind of a generic umbrella term for lots of kinds of lures. So let's get to my top 10 plugs for targeting redfish. And keep in mind, there are literally thousands of other plugs out there that would work great on redfish. Even the companies that I'll name here make many other plugs besides the ones I'm pointing to. So realistically, this is like a Hall of Fame list. And being on this top 10 list is basically me saying, these are the best of the best, the best of the best, as far as I'm concerned, at least. All right, let's start at number 10 by going long and throwing a bomb. The Bomber Saltwater-Grade Mullet. This is a slow-sinking twitch bait lure that is just ideal for redfish and just about any other inshore species. I love the unique body design that embodies that classic tapered plug body, but that has this unique arch to it, giving it a fantastic action in the water. The hardware is also super strong and designed for saltwater conditions. I love the split rings on the rigging eye and the split ring replaceable hooks. There are about eight color variations, but for redfish, I like the gold, black, orange belly and the spot tail pogie version. I also love that these lures are labeled mullet down the side of them of the lure as if to make sure the fish understands what they're looking at. The bomber mullet is a three and a half inch lure. It weighs five and an eighth of an ounce. Also, bomber saltwater grade mullet are some of the most reasonably priced lures out there. And the mullet go for about six bucks a piece. Do keep in mind that Bomber does make a topwater version of these mullet, which are also awesome. But for this top 10, I'm thinking about the slow sinking versions. At number nine, I want to give props to Nomad Designs Mascad 95 slow sinking lure. Note that there are a lot of different sizes among the Mascad line of lures. And for reds, I recommend the 95, which is a three and three quarter inch lure that weighs three quarters of an ounce. There are other versions that go up to six inches in length. These can be great, too, on bigger reds, but for most fish, I like the smaller version. Also, there are suspending models and slow sink models. Both are great for reds, but I prefer the slow sink just because you can keep the lure moving more than you would with a suspending version. Also, if you haven't looked at the Mascad catalog of colors, you should. They have some innovative takes on classic color patterns and some dynamic original patterns, too. I will always like a redhead white body for redfish, and the Nomad design take on this classic, the Fireball redhead, is fantastic. I also find great luck with their natural mullet pattern and their olive black shad. The one drawback drawback of the mask head, though, is the price point. You can find these lures as low as ten bucks, but most are lifted listed at fifteen to twenty a piece. In the number eight position, I've got one of my favorite search baits, which also happens to be one of my favorite redfish baits, and I'm talking about Unfair Lures Arrowhead. 
You've probably heard me talk about the great lures that Paul Van Rienen designs for unfair lures, and among those I have grown quite fond of the Arrowhead. Its unique design makes it a phenomenal distance casting lure, and its retrieval action is comparable to a walk-the-dog action but underwater. It's more of a shallow water or just subsurface lure, and it runs best in depths between a foot and three feet down. I love that the arrowhead rigging eye comes with a barrel swivel, swivel rather than a fixed place eye or a split ring, letting the lure move more freely. And the swivel prevents the spinning and uh, prevents spinning and line knotting. Of course, like most of the unfair lures, the arrowhead has unfair's patented 3D bleeding gills, which is a kind of marabou or flashaboo that's built into the lure and gives the visual impression of an injured and bleeding fish. Unique, too, to the arrowhead, as well as some of the other unfair lures, is the transverse barb-styled hook. The arrowhead measures in at 2.7 inches and weighs half an ounce. That makes it ideal for casting line in the range of 8 to 20-pound class. They come in about 16 or so colors. I'm a big fan of the pinfish, the menhaden, the pearl olive, and the pearl gold when targeting reds. At number seven, let's throw Rapala's X-Rap into the mix. The X-Rap, of course, is a diverse lure that comes in very, a variety of models, but I'm talking here specifically about the X-Rap Saltwater Series, and even there, we need to think of the X-Rap name as an umbrella term for a lot of lures that includes everything from topwater poppers like the X-Rap Magnum Explode to trolling lures like the X-Rap Magnum. But for plugs for reds, I'm a fan of the X-Rap Twitching Minnow. This slow-sinking lure has the action of a subsurface walk the dog retrieve. Its slow-sinking design also allows you to get the lure down to where reds, reds tend to feed. The X-Rap Twitching Minnow comes in a 4.5-ounce model and a 4.75-inch model. Excuse me. The X-Rap Twitching Minnow comes in a 4-inch, half-ounce model and a 4-3-quarter-inch model that weighs in at just a hair under one ounce. It's 15 sixteenths of an ounce to be exact. Like I said, this is a slow sink lure and it sinks well on the pause and on the retrieve. It runs at depths of one to two feet, which is great when fishing skinny water for reds. I'm also a big fan of the fact that it comes rigged with VMC Coastal Black one-time X inline hook, single hooks, rather than with twin treble hooks as a lot of plugs do. Given the attention to catch and release with reds, I like the single hook over the treble hook for releasing fish easier and with less damage. All right, at number six, and you've probably heard me tout its virtue in other top tens, I'm a big fan of Bagley's Rattlin' Finger Mullet. I fell in love with Bagley's Finger Mullet more than 25 years ago, and now the company has upgraded the mullet into an even more effective lure. The old model was made of balsa wood, but the reimagined version has a hard plastic body that's so much more durable. There are nine color options available in two sizes. Oh, and if you want to learn more about Bagley's Rattlin' Finger Mullet, be sure to check out my review of these lures over at InventaFishing.com or on the InventaFishing YouTube channel. The reviews got some pretty interesting stuff about the history of Bagley lures as well. Now keep in mind that Bagley's makes both the topwater version of the rattling finger mullet and a sinking model. Both are great, but when I'm aiming at reds, it's that sinking model I go to. As always, I'm a fan of their classic redhead, but I have to say that the silver mullet, the natural mullet, and the copper mullet all work great for reds. Sitting in the five golden rings position, I'm going to give props to a classic lure, an iconic lure, a lure that every saltwater angler ought to have in their tackle boxes and probably has had them and relied on them for 25 years or more, and that's Mirror Lure's 52MR. 
This is a legend of a lure. These, these may be the most durable lures out there. These iconic red eyes on these things, the flash of the lures, this all makes visual attraction of the highest quality. Of course, the triple treble hook makes this lure that's nearly impossible to miss a hookup. I love that the rigging eye sits atop of the head rather at the nose, giving the lure that head down swimming action. This is a fantastic lure for fishing skinny water. This is a lure I've been using successfully for decades in all sorts of inshore scenarios, particularly when targeting reds. So yeah, indeed, the mirror lure, 52MR. Okay, at number four, I'm going to turn my attention to Yozuri's 3D inshore series of lures. But I'm going to highlight the 3D inshore twitch bait as a fantastic redfish plug. This is a slow-sinking lipless bait that has great balance. That slow-sinking action and balance make it great for skinny water, particularly around grass and structure like oyster bars. This is a lure with great visual appeal, and the flash in these bodies is really reflective to draw the fish's attention to the bait. Yozuri names this reflective quality an internal hologram sheet. The lure's body is a great mimic of a bait fish body, and the action adheres to that mimicry as the lure swims with great darting action, and it drops slowly on the pause and reacts well to the twitch, holding its upright position with a great rolling swim. They come in four sizes, ranging from two and three quarter inch model at a quarter of an ounce up to a five and a quarter inch model at one and three quarter ounces. That's a pretty big lure. They are available in 18 color patterns, but for reds, my favorite, in addition to a traditional redhead, are the mullet, the gold black, and the peanut bunker, though really, I don't think there's a color pattern in this palette that wouldn't be effective for targeting reds. All right, in the number three position, I want to get at that great lure from Unfair Lures, the rip and slash slow suspend. Now, I've been pretty upfront in the past about my respect for what Paul Van Reenen has done with Unfair Lures, like I mentioned a moment ago about the Arrowhead and the designs he's offered through Unfair. So putting the rip and slash at my number three position seems warranted. Now, as is the case with a lot of other lures in this list, the Rip and Slash comes in a couple of models, including a floating topwater version, but for this countdown, I'm talking about the Slow Suspend model, which comes in two sizes, a 70mm and a 90mm. The Rip and Slash mold is designed to mimic a cigar minnow. It features the patented 3D bleeding gill feature, which I said already is a kind of marabou or flashaboo that's molded into the gill area. It's got great eyes. It also really, I also really like how Van Reenen incorporates transverse hooks into a lot of these lures, like I mentioned before about the arrowhead. Um, this, this lure is designed for shallow water in depths of one to five feet. Unlike a lot of other plugs I've talked about here too, the rip and slash has a dorsal and anal fin in the design, giving the lure a really hydro, hydrodynamic swimming movement. Okay, in the bridesmaid position, the number two, the runner-up, I want to go to a newer bait that I'm absolutely loving to fish for with reds, and that's the Berkeley Juke. This is a really dynamic lure that Berkeley just released a few months ago. It's a lipped crankbait style lure that has a coffin-shaped bill that really accentuates the darting action of the lure with little effort from the angler. I'm intrigued by the flat side shad-shaped body and how it moves in the water. It responds to the twitch on the retrieve really well and has a good lifelike motion on the retrieve. It's a really responsive lure. It's also got great flash to it for visual stimulation. This lure, in fact, really does have that wooden plug feel to it, like a classic lure, but it's a plastic lure and a really rugged plastic at that. 
It comes in two sizes, a three and three quarter inch version at three eighths of an ounce and a four inch version at 11 sixteenths of an ounce. It's available in 14 color variations, including one called Redfish. I've hit some pretty big reds with the mullet pattern, the new penny pattern and the mangrove minnow patterns. So that brings us to my number one plug for targeting redfish. Before I let you in on that secret, though, here's a quick recap. Number 10, Bomber Saltwater Grade Mullet. Number 9, Nomad Design, Mascad 95 Slow Sinking. At 8, The Unfair Arrowhead. At 7, Rapala's X-Rap Twitchin' Minnow. At 6, Bagley's Rattlin' Finger Mullet. At 5, Mirror Lures 52 MR. At 4, Yozuri's Inshore Twitch Bait. At three, we're back again to Unfair and their rip and slash so suspend. Notice that Unfair is the only company to make two of the top ten positions this week. At number two, Berkeley's Juke. And that leaves us with just one left. And one is the loneliest number that I've ever heard, unless you're number one in the Fishing Professor's Top Ten, in which case you're probably Miralure's Miradine. And Mirror enter Miralure enters with its second list in the top 10 for this week. This is my absolute favorite plug for targeting fish. And from what I've seen and heard, I'm not the only one who thinks so. The Miradine is a suspending twitch bait that comes in about 30 color options and a few variations by series, like the CI Pro series, the Broken Glass series, and the Skin series. And for whatever reason, I will say that the Miradine Skin series seems to perform better than the others when the water starts to cool off. The Miradine comes in three sizes, a 2 and 5 eighths inch model at 3 eighths of an ounce, a 3 and 1 eighth inch model at 1 ounce, and a 3 and 3 quarter inch 9 sixteenths of an ounce version. This is a lipless twitch bait that has a great bait fish profile. It's also a rattling bait, so between the visual of the profile, the eyes, the colors for visual attractant, the audio attracting qualities of the Miradine are great too. With all sincerity, the Miradine really is my favorite plug for targeting reds. That's not to take away from the quality and excellence of the other plugs in this top 10, because they're all fantastic lures too, but I really am a fan of the Miradine. And that brings us to the close of another Fishing Professor's Top 10 list. And of course, just a reminder that my top 10s are not sponsored, so no one is buying a ticket for this bus ride. It's all about what I really fish with and what I really find to be effective. That's not to say that my favor can't be bought. And for a few measly $100,000, your lure can conveniently make the top 10 as well. Of course, if you have a kind of tackle you'd like me to count down on a future top 10, feel free to email me at sid at inventivefishing.com to make, make a suggestion. Tune in next week for another informative and unfettered top 10 list. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode. Once more into the breach, my friends. I want to thank Jose Chavez for that great conversation about Z-Man. I do hope you found my pontifications about Whistlepig Rye to be of some value to you in your hedgehog. I hope my countdown of my top 10 plugs for redfish inspired you to think about what redfish lures you find most effective. Before I sign off today, I do have a message for our brothers and sisters out there behind the line. The crabs are in the pot. I say again, the crabs are in the pot. And that just about does it for this week's episode of the Fishing Professor Rodcast. Be sure to look for next week's episode on Wednesday, and I hope you and all the members of my listening crew, even Pip the Cabin Boy, I hope you'll all be spreading the word about the Rodcast. And of course, if you have comments or questions about anything on this week's show or have recommendations for future, future top tens, bourbon breaks, interviews, 
or information about specific fishing-related issues, please feel free to email me at sid at inventafishing.com or leave a reply in any of the comment sections for any of the podcast platforms you use to listen to the broadcast. Be sure to follow Inventive Fishing on Twitter, Instagram, and friend us on Facebook at Inventive Fishing. And be sure to check out all the great video content over on the Inventive Fishing YouTube channel. Hey, love peace and chicken grease. I'll be back next week with another episode. And until then, this is Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor. Fish on! The Fishing Professor Show is copyrighted by Inventive Fishing, LLC. Any rebroadcast of the podcast without the consent from Inventive Fishing, LLC is strictly prohibited. Fish on!